Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. This is our ninth annual Kosciuszko Chair Military Lecture in honor of General Walter Yaiko. This event is sponsored by the Center for Intermarium Studies and the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics. Dr. Mara Kodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics, where he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He is the author of Intermarium, The Land Between, the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. Professor Hodakiewicz is the head of the Center for Intermarium Studies at the Institute of World Politics. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Hello, thank you. Thank you. Can um, you see? Today's topic will be Maurice Pate, but Pate is an excuse uh, to our inquiry. He was an American gentleman born in 1894. Uh, he died in 1965. He uh, began helping civilians at a very early age and eventually became the executive, the first executive director of UNICEF. He had a distinguished career. A few months after he died, his organization received uh, the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize was really his. He was an extraordinary human being, but he will serve as an excuse to um, a, an inquiry which is based on research conducted by me for uh, uh, the Intermarium Minsk project at the, at the CVG Mud Manuscript Library at Princeton University, at the Hoover Institution, Stanford, California, and uh, uh, a few other archives. The first, I will tell you a little bit about war and humanitarianism and how I have selected this topic for our General Yaiko annual lecture. Um, then I'll speak in general about uh, war and mercy. And lastly, I'll try to read a few things from Pate's letters. He wrote to mom and dad and sometimes his siblings uh, more frequently than once a week. Sometimes when he was in the field it was not that frequent, but uh, 
just bear with me because obviously he operated in the context and to an extent in the shadow of um, uh, some great people. It, I will concentrate on the period of his life from more or less 1918 to 1921. I will try to demonstrate, as reflected in his letters, various uh, quirks and vignettes, a mine of information of things long forgotten and extremely touching and poignant. Anyway, that war impacts civilians as a truism. Uh, the warriors in history tended for the most part to disregard the innocent bystanders. This was a given. Uh, things have changed only very slowly and unevenly over the past two centuries. Professionalization of the battlefield tended to prompt a similar process on the humanitarian field among the civilians. Uh, this applies primarily among the mightiest who happen, who happen to be the Western democracies, with the United States leading the way. Uh, first bona fide permanent medical services were set up for the troops in the 19th centuries, which was a lapse of over 1500 years since the initial Roman effort. Now, I'm not saying other militaries in China, India, etc. lacked for surgeons, those tended not to be permanent services. Obviously, when you have casualties, then uh, commanders try to find people who know how to amputate limbs or give potions to ease the pain. But nowhere was it permanent, with the exception of um, the Roman uh, military. And then in the 19th century, once again, it was given some kind of an institutional framework. Florence Nightingale pioneered the what would, what would eventually become the Red Cross approach during the Crimean War. Because next to wounds, most people suffer of diseases in the battlefield. Destabilization, collapse, brings all sorts of nastiness. Hunger weakens a human being and leads to um, lowered immunity and diseases. A whole charitable medical industry and infrastructure emerged during America's War for the Union, 1861, 1865. And most kids here know who Clara Barton was, and probably most adults too. She was a sort of an American Florence Nightingale. Next, public and private relief organizations arose to tend to the needs of the civilian victims of conflict. Initially, they materialized ad hoc in um, reaction to an emergency. But soon, such outfits became institutionalized. Further, international law attempted to humanize certain aspects 
a war in what used to be, be called Western Christendom, Christendom. It was chivalry and Christianity, which were unwritten codes regulating or attempting to regulate the savagery of war. Let's just say this was an unwritten code. Didn't always work out. For instance, by the end of the 19th century and early 20th centuries, written rules of conduct vis-a-vis -vis POWs appeared. Interestingly, it was at the insistence of Russia's last Tsar, Nicholas, that they were um, uh, uh, that they became international law at the Hague Convention. Another set of laws explained the framework of interaction between the occupier and the occupied. All this, one hoped, with the 19th century's liberal optimism, was supposed to have made the war more bearable. The conservative critique was, as always, why write anything down? Such rules ought to be written in the heart of every Christian, including every Christian warrior. Who would, for goodness sake, maltreat or murder a POW? That was the conservative critique. Was it necessary to stipulate in law that one should not be bestial to civilians? What kind of times do we live in? That was a conservative uh, critique. What kind of a world are we in? That we need to have a, a law about something that's obviously clear, or it should be clear to everybody. Well, it wasn't. The 20th century would soon give both liberals and conservatives an answer, and it was bestial. That period witnessed serious discontinuities, disruptions, and departures from what was taken for granted as a benign process of humanizing war. Namely, ideological conflicts fueled by communism and Nazism tended not just to reverse, but to negate the process of humanizing conflict. Despite that, there were men and women who stayed true to their faith and convictions. The victims must be helped, always. Whether we call them Christians or humanitarians, which is a substitute for what the West used to call Christian, people like Morris Pate have made profound difference against seemingly overwhelming odds. In particular, this fellow was assigned to help children. And he executed his um, task exceedingly well. So, let me show you and tell you about him. It's his picture in a military uniform. He was a second lieutenant of, uh, it wasn't the Army Corps of Engineers, but he was an engineer. And this is, whoops, sorry, and this is where he found himself. 
between 1918 and 1921, Poland fought five border wars, and most notably the Polish-Bolshevik War in the 1920s. Unlike Germany, which lost the war, where there were troubles and diseases and lack of food, this area, the Intermarium, found itself in hell, not just during the war, but also in the war's wake, because the war continued on many fronts. And lo and behold, the American Relief Administration, including the European Children's Fund under Herbert Hoover, operated in what we call the Intermarium, the lands between the, Bla uh, the Black and Baltic Seas. That is, American relief volunteers recognized that there was an acute need in a belt of states between Germany and Russia who needed most help. And this is actually an American map of operations, charity operations, including for children. Okay. This is the Hoover Relief Mission. Hate started in April 1919, I'm sorry, in March, uh, with general relief. He showed up in Poland in February 1919 on a train with a bunch of Americans, volunteers. Some of them were assigned to this relief mission. Uh, this is actually a picture of grateful children, but in April he was feeding 300,000 children, a year later 1.3 million a day just in Poland. Pate was in charge of this effort. Pate was uh, born in Pender, Nebraska, but grew up in Denver, Colorado. He came from a large family of a successful entrepreneur. His parents sent him to Princeton, so he was an Ivy Leaguer. Uh, first, after graduating, I think in 1915, he worked in banking, but soon he had a call of duty. He volunteered to serve in the American Charitable Mission headed by Herbert Hoover in Belgium. When uh, America uh, when America entered the war, World War I, he volunteered for the military, he was commissioned second lieutenant uh, on the Western Front and afterwards he was seconded to uh, the Hoover Mission His main job was to feed children, which he did for several years. He also endeavored to undertake a similar job with much less success, although with as much enthusiasm, in Bolshevik Russia from the second half of the uh, 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 year of our Lord, 1920. Uh, hate 
and a friend drove onto the oncoming Bolshevik juggernaut in August 1920 to set up liaison. Uh, they were convinced that there had been correspondence, which there had, but the Bolsheviks pretended uh, there, were, there was none, so Pate was promptly arrested with his uh, friend. Uh, they came to Minsk as a part of um, a Polish negotiating team to achieve peace between Poland and Bolshevik Russia. And then they were, mm, mm, this is a very interesting story, they were, they were uh, detained. Uh, after a while they were allowed to proceed to Moscow and among their escorts there was uh, someone who I quote, displayed bovine stupidity. And he, will, he would never leave their side, and he was just very annoying, acting almost like a deaf, mute moron. Upon arrival in Moscow, and the Americans cleaned up and went to see Soviet officials, I believe Chicherin, the very same guy welcomed them in flawless English. So this was a Soviet deception, they had an escort was supposed to eavesdrop on them and find out what they were all about. And they were not used to things like this. By the way, um, uh, American relief workers, so most of them officers, referred to what transpired in Soviet Russia as a, the adventure in Bolo land, as in Bolshevik land, Bolo land. In any event, uh, in Poland and later in Russia and then back in Poland again when Pate returned. Uh, the Americans were led first by Colonel Grave and then Colonel Carson. At the end of 1920, um, Pate returned to the US, but in 1922 he returned to Poland where he represented Standard Oil. Next he switched to banking, he lived in Poland doing business in import-export and he was from the very beginning uh, welcomed in Poland's highest society. So aristocracy, London, nobility, intelligentsia, very uh, solid and patriotic people. I'll show you pictures in a second. Well, this is the person who made everything happen. Herbert Hoover, the greatest humanitarian among Americans and absolutely hands down among American presidents. He saved millions of lives. Not too many people are aware that more human beings perished from diseases, in particular so-called Spanish flu, which broke out in the wake of World War I. It exploded in China and then arrived on ships through Brazil into Spain and then infected Europe. More people died than in the trenches of World War I. And the epidemic started more or less in 1918-1919. Herbert Hoover understood the need from the very beginning. An engineer, he had a weak spot, a weak spot for Poland for a very strange reason, in 
1896, I believe he was a senior at Stanford. Uh, the period's Elvis Presley was on concert in Northern California in several places. His name was Ignacy Paderewski, the famous pianist. So Hoover approached him as a whippersnapper and said, hey, Mr. Paderewski, would you mind playing a concert to benefit uh, students at Stanford for scholarships and whatever else we could do? Unfortunately, Hoover was not, at that point, a Hollywood impresario. So he and his friends didn't really know how to organize a concert. They uh, picked a venue in San Jose, but they didn't know how to advertise. Unfortunately, hardly anybody showed up. And Hoover was extremely tormented because that put him in debt to Panderewski. And Panderewski played the concert for the few that showed up, who, who appeared, uh, who knew about it because there was just lack of communication. And then he shrugged his shoulders and told the kids, eh, don't worry about it, forget it. Well, Hoover never forgot. Panderewski probably forgot that he had met a kid named Herbert Hoover but Hoover always remembered, and when he showed up in Warsaw in 1919, he said, yes, Poland needs us, and I'm here because I'm grateful to you. You helped us students, and you didn't mind, and you never asked us to repay the debt we, uh, we at Stanford have to you, and I'm here to help. So Hoover was conditioned to look at Poland beyond what we would call generic sympathy and a human or Christian reflex to assist. He also had a, a personal recollection that made him more prone to be sympathetic. Here is another important player who understood what was going on in Poland. Ambassador Gibson the State Department's leading light. I wish we had ambassadors like him today. Very measured, a member of the old WASP elite, of course. He understood the situation. He quickly recognized all the quirks. And all well, his papers have been published lately, both in English and in Polish, if you're interested. It's fabulous reading, fabulous reading. Ambassador Gibson, and this is his wife in Warsaw. That meant that private charity had diplomatic support. Not only did it have an official military component seconded to uh, the expedition, which eventually, as you saw, spread from Estonia to Armenia, but it had diplomatic support of the highest kind. So we always teach at IWP about integrated strategy. Of course, there was sympathy from President Wilson, 
Obviously, Poland figures prominently as one of his 14 points, point number 13, uh, Colonel House too. But the American leads back then understood that it wasn't enough to win the war. One needed to help to make peace happen, to make it permanent. And here is um, another important player whom uh, Pate met. This is Marshal Joseph Piłsudski. Marshal Joseph Piłsudski, uh, who was the commander-in-chief of the Polish army, a socialist. Uh, he was accused and suspected of being a German lackey. Well, the Germans definitely preferred him over um, others of the pro-Western orientation, but he was of the pro-Polish orientation, who thought that he could uh, take advantage of the war on the side of uh, central powers to help resurrect Poland. That's his nemesis, the brainy Romandmowski, one of the most sagacious politicians who represented the pro-Western option. He was a deputy in the Duma but almost immediately he moved to the West. Before any serious trouble developed in Russia, he was already lobbying in the West, among other things, receiving a, a doctorate honoris causa at Cambridge for his um, work on Poland. Multilingual, extremely cerebral politician not a romantic in a tactical sense like um, Piłsudski, but almost a robot. That's how overly logical he was. And here is the guy who bankrolled the Polish National Committee of Paderewski and Dmowski, sometimes playing cards with his friends in the West. Poland's largest landowner, Count Maurizy Zamoyski. I used to know his son, Jan. My grandmother's first cousin worked for the Zamoyski Enterprises as a director of their boozing branch, so spirit distilleries. Maurizy Zamoyski was a politician, but mostly he was a philanthropist. He gave and he served, he spent a fortune on an enterprise that appeared to everybody like a pipe dream, namely Poland's freedom. Uh, and he cared. This was a cause greater than himself, to the detriment of his own business, because everybody said to him, are you insane? When you are an aristocrat in the Russian Empire, and you also have holdings in the Habsburg Empire and in the Prussian Empire. You are on the roll. You can't go wrong. And you're thinking about Poland? That means you won't have any markets. You won't be able to sell what you produce, what your estates produce. And he said, never mind. Freedom is the most important, and the restoration of Poland is what matters. So the Kanzamoyski. Uh, when he heard the Americans were coming, Hoover's mission, or American relief, 
administration. He invited everyone to stay at his place. He moved out. This is one of his palaces. That one is in Warsaw, the Blue Palace. Palace Benkitny. And he left him his cooks and servants. So the Americans were very surprised. Yes, among other things. And this is the mission. Uh, this is the this is the detail of the mission that dealt with children, most precisely, with some of uh, Polish officials, including from the Ministry of Health, etc. This is July fourth, nineteen nineteen, and as you see. That is our kid sitting in the first row. You can recognize American uniform. These are not. These are not Polish officers. To put it in context, the American relief force people were not the only ones from America and Poland. You would be surprised to see Polish troops playing baseball. That's because even though they had American uniform on, they were from Chicago, Detroit, New York, Boston. One of our professor's wife, Ciocia Karolcia, Carol de Grafenried, had a grandfather who was with what was called the Haller Army. And this is a fascinating story that nobody knows about, and here is you see the American flag, not only because the American ambassador is speaking to the Polish troops, but because they are Americans. So there is a Polish flag and the American flag, and the American ambassador is speaking. So here is a short story. A, the American-Polish community lobbied President Wilson, in fact, after the Zimmerman Memorandum, they proposed to send an American-Polish force to fight the Germans. <laughs> uh, Wilson did not agree, but because of the influence of Colonel House, who was a friend of Paderewski, he agreed to break the Constitution of the United States, namely to allow Americans of Polish descent and Poles in America, legal residents, uh, to be recruited into a force, 60,000 volunteers. 60,000, most of them Falcons or sports associations and various other community associations. 25,000 of them were permitted illegally to travel to Canada, where the Canadians under British and French auspices set up a camp called Camp Kosciuszko, Niagara on the Falls, where the 25,000 trained, and then they embarked on ships before America joined the war, and they fought in France. After the unfortunate uh, armistice of November 11, 1919, the troops clamored to be allowed to proceed to Poland, where they fought in all the border wars and against the Bolsheviks. Peyton used to hang out with them for obvious reasons and bumped into them. Uh, all over the place.
But he further kept company of people like this. These are the Lutoslavskis and Niklevichs. Uh, they adopted the kid. I mean, other American officers uh, were adopted by other families, but that is uh, one of the families that had him over. So Pate was very happy he discovered a new holiday. He said, the Poles don't celebrate birthdays, they celebrate name names. He was a Protestant, so he didn't understand it was a Saint Patron's Day <laughs> every year. But he had a lot of fun with them went out with one of the Lutoslavsky girls, and he also knew these people. Not all officers, not all officers, they were a part of the relief mission. One of them came with Hoover, and then he realized that Poland needs experts much more, so he went back to Paris, and told his friends were born out of their heads from the Army Corps or Army Air Corps to go to come back to Poland with him. And they were the founders of the Polish Air Force. Why do you think we have the Kosciuszko chair in Polish studies? This is a symbol designed by Americans. This is the Polish Air Force. And all of you, I'm sure, know about these individuals. The founders were Major LaFont Roy and Miriam Cooper, you see, in his handsome Polish uniform. All of you should know them. But you don't, except you do. Miriam Cooper went on to become not only a CIA officer, uh, not only an OSS operative in China during World War II, and a world travel traveler, etc., but he became a Hollywood producer. His most famous production was King Kong. And he said, a beast from the East attempts to seduce a gullible maiden from the West. Then the gallant pilot rides to the rescue. A Polish Bolshevik war. This is a no-brainer. <laughs> one of the furthest points before Pate moved on to moved on to um, uh, Bolshevik Russia was the Polishian Front. This is actually Pinsk on the way to Uninets. General Listowski, the commanding officer of that segment of the front, took a shine to Pate. He really, they really liked each other. Exchanged, they exchanged correspondence in French. Pate uh, thought that all the officers whom he met were extremely gallant, and he was impressed in particular how, uh, uh, how young some of the front fighters were. That was uh, a, a major counterpart of his a little bit older than him, and he said he, you know, he captured Pinsk from the Bolsheviks. And this was simply incredible. I would like to stress such facts from documents because journalists and others, especially leftist politicians who were political pilgrims, 
would come to Poland on organized trips to besmirch Poland and especially besmirch Polish armed forces as a bunch of reactionaries and pogromists, etc., etc. Now, the person who daily operated among the Polish military, this is after capturing Wuninitz, the same general, the people who operated daily among the Polish military arguably had best insights. They had best insights. And this is uh, the first borderlands delegation of elected deputies to Poland's parliament, you see. All sorts of people, peasants, nobility, intelligentsia, women, ladies. Paid work for them. Because it was the civilians who benefited from his uh, soup kitchens. He even, he even says, at one point one of my um, teams was deep, deep inside the pollution marshes and bandits accosted them and it was hard to tell whether they were just plain bandits, bandits and Bolsheviks or bandits and anarchists and usually they robbed people, sometimes they killed them but the bandits heard those were American relief workers or connected to the American relief mission and they just said, oh you guys are even more poor and helping more poor people than we are so they let them go and didn't even rob them This is a book you all ought to read, The Big Show in Bololan, The American Relief Expedition in Soviet Russia and the Famine of 1921. But this is, this is only a segment of this enormous, enormous and fabulous work done by um, uh, Hoover and his people. And here's Morris Pate in his later years. Uh, so let me tell you a few personal words about him. In 1927, he married Jadwiga Mankowska, Countess Mankowska, I believe. In 1935, he returned to the United States permanently uh, to be an entrepreneur, but his marriage fell apart. His wife missed home too much. But the breakup was very amicable and they kept in touch until the end of her life. At one point, he recommended her as a venue for black market activities for Americans that were visiting Poland in the late 50s. He told a friend, if you need to exchange money, go see Yadja, his former wife. She lived in an expropriate in, in the house of uh, the Vedel family in Konstantin. In any event, during World War II, Pate was the head of the Commission for Polish Relief, uh, and uh, one of his top collaborators with the American Red Cross, her name escapes me now, was a friend of Professor George Lanchowski, who bumped into her in the mid-30s in Paris. And she said, wow, I'd like to see Poland. 
And George Lanchowski said, come on down. All you have to do is the first address. She took a ship to Gdańsk, disembarked. She was picked up by some friends, and she moved from one manor house to another. Uh, and the local landed nobility simply took her all the way down through Warsaw and all the way uh, uh, beyond, I believe, to Lvov. And she had a fabulous time, remembered and later repaid with kindness, just as paid. Later, um, he joined the American Red Cross. After the war, he uh, joined UNICEF and became its executive director in 1947. He traveled the world, including to Soviet-occupied Poland. Uh, he further served as a uh, vice dean at Radcliffe College and the president of Sweetbrier College. When his wife died, I think in 1959, he proposed to a lady, Martha Lucas. They got married in 1960. He kept in touch with his Polish friends, which is obvious from correspondence, until the end of his life. He, they wrote letters back and forth. Uh, Poland never left him. Uh, from, uh, I remember reading a letter he wrote from Karachi informing others about the death in a car accident of Count Andrzej Tarnowski in Brazil. And then that Karol Donimirski died in New York in 1958. He helped Donimirski's niece, Teresa Szczepańska of Andrespol near Łódź to get out of the People's Republic successfully at the end of the 1950s. Even small things marked him as somebody who's imbued with uh, sympathy and appreciation for uh, his Polish period and his Polish friends. Friends in 1960, for example, he invited Edward Falkowski to lunch in New York. In 1962, he wrote copiously about looking forward to a Polish Christmas in Gottstow with Edward Iwaszkiewicz, Helena Pantaleoni and Tadeusz uh, Adamowski. We can multiply uh, such examples until the very end he remembered Poland and the Poles, especially the milieu that opened up its hearts, the old elite that no longer exists. He died suddenly of a heart attack in New York, and then UNICEF received the Nobel Peace Prize, which really should have been bestowed upon him. He was, um, he was a fabulous, fabulous person. He also kept in touch with Herbert Hoover. He wrote to a friend after October 30th, 1964. Your words about Herbert Hoover were very thoughtful in his passing, I lost a very great friend, a friendship that goes back 48 years. Pate attended a funeral and, uh, of Hoover, funeral services in New York, and he traveled on the funeral 
trying to to uh, DC and the uh, burial in West Branch, Iowa. He always credited Hoover with uh, the greatest of efforts, humanitarian efforts. And Hoover, like the people described by Tate, is unfortunately forgotten. He should be given credit. And at the end, I would like to tell you something about General Yako, as pertinent to my lecture. Uh, why did I pick the topic? If the general was a man of war. If you walked into the general's office upstairs, there were several pictures on the wall. Number one, it was Sun Tzu. And Sun Tzu taught us how to win a war without firing a shot. That's what the general prepared. Uh, next to it, there was Marshal Joseph Hiosutsky, who not only is credited along with his chief of staff, General Tadeusz Rozwadowski, with designing a plan that defeated the Red Army, the only time it sustained a defeat in a war in the field. But Piłsudski subscribed to an idea that to be defeated and not to surrender is victory. And that's right. It's in your brain that you're going to fight on, and it doesn't matter how many times you are defeated. And that's a very Polish story. The third picture was General William T. Sherman. Because as General Walter Yanko used to say, sometimes you have to do it the hard way. Sherman waged total war for the Union. Because there was no other way. Everything else had failed. And finally, the fifth picture on the wall was Matka Boska Częstochowska, Our Lady of Częstochowa, the Black Madonna. The Poles call her the Queen of Poland, but they also call her the Queen of Mercy. And mercy must be an indispensable element of war. Thank you very much. Absolutely, my pleasure. This is uh, really fun stuff, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I just didn't have a question about failed states, uh, you know, just because uh, I understand your authority on failed states, but I'm just wondering what your opinion is of South Sudan and uh, the future of South Sudan. It, well, I, I, I don't have a, a crystal ball, but yes, I pay attention to South Sudan. The most important uh, feature of South Sudan is that the Japanese troops are in combat for the first time since World War II, as far as global implications are concerned. The Japanese? The Japanese. For the first time, this is not just a relief and assistance mission, right. they actually fight. 
in South Sudan? Yes. Uh, of course not. <laughs> That's the way the Japanese like to keep yeah. things. But that yeah. is the most important, from the point of view of global concern, the most important feature of the war in, in South Sudan. As far as the people of South Sudan, well, even when they were fighting against Khartoum, the regime in Khartoum, they were divided and Sudan was able to manipulate the, the rebels. So the people who defected from the rebels and later rejoined because of American effort to unite the opposition to the north and because of considerations of aid as well as post-war power sharing agreement, the same people decided they were given a raw deal and rebelled. It all started with cattle rustling, which is a seasonal and traditional feature of South Sudan. Cattle what? Rustling. They were stealing oh, cows. Oh, rustling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They were stealing cows right. from one another. Uh, and this metastasized into, from the grassroots, into a civil war aided by serious quarrels at the top. One of our professors happened to be in South Sudan. I told him not to go because I had info from my sources, mainly from uh, Sam Childers, machine gun preacher. He was, yeah, he was on a mission there, and I invited him, he came here with his big truck, and we shot a movie, where we used to have movies here, and uh, Sam said that he was an officer in one of the Christian militias, and there, there was going to be trouble. This was a, at least a month and a half before anything blew up. I understand our State Department used to rely heavily on missionaries as a source of information and guidance. Unfortunately, now we ignore them to our peril, and the missionaries are the ones who are in situ, in place. Uh, there are many layers to the war in Sudan. Some of it is plain politics, as always, and power struggles among warlords. But a lot of it is uh, uh, traditional patterns fueled with uh, modern weapons. And then anything in between plus destabilization from Khartoum. There are unsavory features, for instance, imagine the Chinese, of course, dealing with anybody a total disregard for human rights or humanitarian issues, and the Chinese happen to have Russian mercenaries flying sorties to make sure everything is secure, say. Oil extraction, plus, uh, since the Chinese don't exactly know how to exploit the resources, there is a Swedish oil company in the background. While the Swedish government 
months of platitudes about feminist foreign policy blames the United States on the destabilization. So it's, as always, it's a mess, murky waters, others fishing it. That's why I said from cattle rustling, of stealing cows, all the way to global issues of energy and global domination and everything in between. Plus waves of um, refugees, Many of whom go to Ethiopia or tend to go to Ethiopia, but then they then, then they sort of hook around and proceed to Libya. Some are enslaved on the way. So the long, the, the short-term perspective is there will be blood, there will continue to be blood and destabilization. There is no state apparatus to speak of if we go to. South Sudan on the mission as diplomats or politicians, not in the countryside, the capital, we would have to live in containers. Containers have been adopted to serve as modules. Here it costs a hundred bucks a night. So it's um, definitely a country in the making. Is it going to be a nation state like? Previous American administrations deluded themselves. Uh, it takes much more than a, than a mark on the map to make the nation state. Yeah. Now, is Japan there as a sort of bilateral agreement with them? I, no, no, I think UN. What's that? I, I think Blue Helmets. Blue Helmets. I think UN. Blue Helmets. The United Nations. Yeah, representative. The Japanese are, are Blue Helmets for the I, UN. Yes, I okay. think so. I think, well, this is the first time it's astonishing that hardly anybody knows about it and hardly anybody writes. Sort of like that helicopter carrier that Japan has against all international treaties because, you know, carrier fighter jets can land on that too. So the Japanese are back. They've changed their constitution. Let's just pray they stay on our side. That's interesting. I, I didn't know anything. Yes, that, that's why I uh, try not to give uh, speeches because everything opens up a new door to another can of worms, if you yeah. want. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So All right, thank you very much. Thank you.